morning. Good morning, Rogers Park. Good to be with you. I'm John McGill. I serve as our associate pastor here at RP. Grateful to be worshiping with you on this midsummer day. Little cloudy, of course. Apologies for some of the technical difficulties. I'm going to be back here tomorrow morning talking to some of the engineers and principal and see what we can do about their projector screen and get that up and running for next week. But appreciate you spending some time with the Lord with me this morning. We continue our Great Stories series. Uh, As Phil preached last week, he was in Hebrews 11, and he mentioned a lot of noteworthy figures of the faith, and one of them in particular we are looking at today. His name is Jacob. Who is Jacob? He's an interesting man to look at, as the writer of the Hebrew reflects that he was a, a man of great faith. Though that's not necessarily what we see in the beginning of his life. And a lot of what we're talking about today is going to reflect on his life before he encounters God in a very interesting situation. Before we do that, though, we're going to dig into another person's life, another towering figure, a slightly more moderate-ish type of Jacob, someone a little closer to our Asian history, though not quite. Bear with me with that. A little over 100 years ago. We're looking at this person, J.P. Morgan. Here's a picture of him right here. Looks like a pretty tough guy. One of the richest men in American history. You may be familiar with the name because you do some of your banking with him. J.P. Morgan Chase, right? Intelligent man. Had a knack for business. And he had an imposing figure. Large, broad-shouldered. Looked very tough. Now, Jacob would not have looked as big and tough as J.P. Morgan, but Jacob was a tough guy. Nonetheless, Morgan was very quick-tempered. And in the boardroom, he would stare with you with piercing eyes, like I'm looking at my wife right now. I don't know why I chose her. (laughs) Had a great day yesterday. And he knew how to exploit weakness. This was a man who knew how to get what he wanted, and he did so by force. And the list of companies that he formed, led, or financed is absolutely amazing. We're talking 42 companies, and some of those include General Electric, General Motors, Western Union, Aetna, DuPont, U.S. Steel, still the largest steel in the entire world, steel company rather, Absolutely amazing. Not only was he the quintessential robber baron, to use the term of the day, but he wasn't afraid to indulge. And he had many houses, and he had a very large art collection, and he smoked over 20 cigars a day, and even though he was married, he loved his women. But there was one thing he was very self-conscious of, his face. And he hated being photographed. And that picture on the left-hand side there, it's very highly doctored. And apparently they had very good Photoshop skills back in the day. Now this one, this isn't very doctored, okay, so looks fine to me. But he had a condition that he was very self-conscious of, right? I'm not going to go into the details, but it actually escalated toward the back half of his life. Now it didn't stop his pursuits, didn't stop his business, didn't stop his indulgences, But he began to reflect on it a bit. He began to remark and think 
And it's very telling for us when in the back half of his life, he remarked, with all the things that I'm able to enjoy with the money I have, how can you really enjoy them with this face? Again, it didn't stop his pursuits, but the story does not end there. His reflections on his appearance eventually led him to change some of his views on life. His face served as a limp for him. This is a man who liked to dominate, but he carried himself into boardrooms with a limp, even though he stared at people still. And it prompted him to reevaluate things. At the end of J.P. Morgan's life, he began to look at more scripture, having a little background in church. And he began to take scripture more seriously and gain a greater understanding of the gospel. And near the end of his life, we begin to see a man who's wrestling with God. Now, we will talk a little bit more about J.P. Morgan in a bit, but let me ask you, what does it mean to wrestle with God? On today's passage, we turn to the life of Jacob And this passage is the great turning point in Jacob's life, causing the latter portion of his life to look different than the former. And we indeed find a wrestling match. And so let's dig into the text. We are looking at Genesis 32. Genesis 32, for those of you turning there, and it's good to do that. Genesis 32, verses 22 to 32. And they read like this. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have served with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And right then and there, he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of this place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping across because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not see, do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's pray. Father, we bless you again this morning. We thank you so much that you have given us your word yet again, Lord. And we pray, Father, that you would open our eyes and ears to hear what it is that you desire to communicate to us today, Father. And I pray, Lord, that all these things that I say today, those things that are of you, Father, would those be the elements that dwell in our hearts richly, that they would conform us more into the likeness of Jesus, make us more so in love with him, and bring you much glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned before, this passage represents the great turning point in Jacob's life. There's many places here for us to scratch our heads and ask, what is going on? Well, the best way to understand that is to simply look at Jacob's life up to this point a bit. 
A lot of times throughout the Bible, we hear the phrase, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Who is this man, Jacob? Jacob's name literally means supplanter, or in easier terms, deceiver. When we look at Jacob's life, we find that Jacob often used deception and trickery to get what he wanted. He was a master schemer. Now, here's the thing. He was also a man with ambition, and he had large aspirations, and he was very good at building an enterprise, and he was a hard worker and an astute farmer. This is a guy who knew how to maximize the world's resources. This, is a, this was a guy who could build something, and his ambitions were present since the day he was born. The Bible includes an account of his birth to begin to show us what kind of man Jacob was. Jacob had an older brother, Esau. They were fraternal twins. And we find that in Genesis 25 that Jacob came out of the womb holding on to Esau as he comes out. So to signify to us what kind of a life Jacob was going to lead. One way or another, he was determined to get ahead. Determined to get of his firstborn brother. And Jacob did not stop there. The day after he was born, he was, he was going. Jacob didn't stop there. He found a way to steal Esau's birthright. He compelled Esau to sell his birthright for a bowl of stew when he found Esau most vulnerable. Again, Jacob was very crafty, if you can pull that sort of thing off. And of course, his father knew that the birthright wasn't supposed to go to Esau. So what does Jacob do? Jacob tricks his father into thinking that he's Esau and he and he tricks his father into giving Jacob his blessing, and that's not good. Esau wants to kill Jacob. Jacob stole his birthright. Jacob stole his blessing. And so now Jacob runs to his uncle Laban's place. Jacob's a man on the run. But Laban is kind of a trickster as well, and during Jacob's stay, they each keep tricking each other. Jacob the trickster gets tricked several times by Laban. Basically, it's the world that Jacob is accustomed to and one that he likes to thrive in. In one instance, Jacob wanted to marry Laban's daughter, Rachel, and made a deal with Laban that if he worked for seven years, then Laban would allow Jacob to marry Rachel. Jacob completed the seven years, but after the wedding night the next morning, Jacob was shocked to find out that Jacob tricked him and somehow, perhaps in the middle of the night or something like that, Jacob, uh, Laban switched Rachel with Leah. Woke up, Jacob woke up to find he didn't marry Rachel. He we woke up to found he, he found he married Leah. Have you ever done that sort of thing? Like in college or after a bar crawl? Yes, well, it happened to Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the faith. Hebrews 11, right? So Jacob agrees to work another seven years to finally marry Rachel, which he finally completes. But there he is on Jacob's land, and Jacob's portion is prospering exponentially. He's a very crafty farmer and pasture of livestock, and he figures out how to multiply his livestock and become wealthy and more or less take the wealth from Jacob's land. This is a man who knows how to maximize the world's resources, again, with worldly tactics and deception in there as well. Lo and behold, there was some deceptive practices, and one way or another, we now find Jacob and his growing family having to escape the situation and they leave Laban's land not only is he on the run 
but he eventually finds his older brother Esau approaching him with 400 men. And when you are approaching someone with 400 men, you're not looking to play a soccer match. No, this is going to be a much more ruthless encounter. And by the way, Esau was in fact a very tough guy. Jacob finds himself in a very desperate situation. But what does Jacob do? He does something very good. He prays. And Jacob whips out a beautiful prayer. But he still has an art, a heart issue. The very next thing Jacob does after he prays is he puts together yet another scheme. He finds some presents, gathers them, gives them to his servants so that his servants would give them to Esau to hopefully appease Esau's anger. Jacob is still scheming right after he prays, and the prayer even included a reminder to himself that we read in a few chapters earlier that God had already promised blessing on Jacob, and yet Jacob still schemes because he thinks his ways are better than God's ways. Well, at this point, we ride at the passage that we read where a mysterious man meets him at the fort of Jabbok. Before we talk about what happened, let's think a little bit about Jacob's character Jacob was a model of self-reliance. And the world that we live in loves self-reliance. And guile and cunning and sly maneuvering and all that stuff. You might have a favorite influencer on Instagram that posts messages with these types of elements that become your battle cry. Here's a couple battle cries that I don't believe Jesus would put on his Instagram account, but I think Jacob would like. Now, I know you can't read these, so I will read these for you. You know, what we trade with this projector is we get clarity through the screen, don't we? Uh Here's one. Be the hero of your own story. Be the hero of your own story. Be the hero. Hmm. Wow, sounds motivating. So if you have your scuba diving equipment, you can rescue someone whose scuba diving equipment has failed and so forth. You are the creator to your own destiny. Wow. Compelling, right? All it takes is a video game console, console, the old Nintendo system, and you can win your way to the top. Yes, I think Jacob would have subscribed to these very well. Yes, fight and chop your way to the top. That'll do it. That'll get the job done. But God never designed it that way. Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to God. And there's no better hero to the story than God himself, especially when he owns it all. Jacob needed to learn that. Now we find he finds himself in a very interesting wrestling match. And so what happens in this wrestling match? His wives and children have crossed the river and Jacob finds himself alone in the darkness. Not much long after, this mysterious man starts wrestling with Jacob. Notice it was the man that began to wrestle, not Jacob. But the wrestling match wasn't a quick one. It went all night. It went up until dawn. The mysterious man isn't winning the match. And what does he do? With the slightest touch of his finger, he moves Jacob's hip out of socket. The man even says to Jacob, let me go. Right? He's telling Jacob, by the way, we've been wrestling eight or ten hours. This is going nowhere. But Jacob 
doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to let go. He continues to cling to him. Within this wrestling match, Jacob's experiencing something different, something life-changing, something extraordinary. Jacob does not want to quit, but he says to the man, I'll quit if you bless me first. The next move the mysterious man says is he demands Jacob to tell his name. Say your name, Jacob, Jacob replies. The man says, your name is no longer Jacob. It is now Israel. And now Jacob knows he's been wrestling with God all night. Jacob's immediately interested to know this man's name. And right then, God blesses him. From that moment on, Jacob was a changed man. We read this story, we scratch our heads in a number of places. First off, God can't defeat Jacob in eight or ten hours. What's up with that? The reality is God could have won this match the second it started. So, what's going on? Well, you ever wrestled with kids, right? You can wrestle with kids for a long time, you know? Now, you could elect to knock the kid out And that would produce really bad things. God could certainly do that to us, but in his kindness and grace, he simply says, my beloved knucklehead, I will wrestle with you at the pace and length that is best for you, the best that I know is for you, God says. Think of your own wrestling If you've done that, we're going to unpack wrestling a bit more. But what kinds of words have you told God? God, you need to view the situation the way I view it. You need to understand my life up to this point. You don't don't quite know what it is that I have been through. You You need to see this situation through my lens as if God didn't know. But God, I'm not letting you go just yet. Not until you have me. The reality is God didn't want to end the wrestling match until he achieved his purposes in Jacob, until Jacob had a changed heart. We're going to look at three dimensions of this wrestling match to explore it a bit further. Where does this wrestling match occur? Why does this wrestling match occur? And what does this wrestling match produce? First of these three angles, where does this wrestling match occur? Well, we said it occurs in Jabbok. Jabbok is a low place. There's three wadis or ravines that converge here at Jabbok. And Jabbok is a place where uh, Jacob finds himself to be completely exhausted, emotionally drained. Makes a lot of sense that God would meet Jacob at his lowest point, at the lowest point on the map. And if we think about that for a second, right, we are always trying to get to the top of mountains, but so often our faith is shaped by our valleys, isn't it? Those low points, those places where there isn't much light, where someone else needs to shine light for us. Where does this wrestling match occur? It occurs in a place where Jacob is alone. After having sent his wives and children across the river, Jacob finds himself by himself. It's not entirely clear why that's the case. But it makes perfect sense that this is the time where God would want to meet him. This is where God so often meets us. He wants our undivided attention. 
And Jacob names this place. Jacob was so moved by the wrestling encounter, as one would imagine, that he marked the place where it occurred with a name. And he named it Peniel. Verse 30, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered by God. Jacob saw God face to face. It's very interesting, isn't it? Throughout the Bible, we see evidence, we learn quite clearly that if you see God face to face, it results in one's mortality. It's a very, it's an extraordinarily traumatic experience for imperfect people like you and me to be in the presence of pure and utter holiness because it is there that we see how unholy, how impure, how distorted we've become. Nonetheless, in a couple places, this being one of them, we see it's possible to see God face to face and it's all grace if that's possible. At this very moment when Jacob saw God, he was experiencing purity and was so strongly drawn to life change and to live a life of faithfulness, Jacob had to mark this place. It was important to him. We turn to a second angle. How do we understand the wrestling? Why does this wrestling match occur? Because God wants to call his people to faithfulness. Before we come to faith, we have a whole plethora of ideas of who God is. And before the Spirit does a convicting work in our hearts, we may have some good things to say about God. We may have some not so good to, things to say about God. We may call upon God when we, when we need something. But when God is only just one piece of our lives, just one sliver of our lives, we only tend to call upon God when it's most convenient. And like Jacob, we strive for achievement, we strive for happiness, we strive for reputation, popularity, but we don't necessarily strive to include God into those endeavors, particularly when we think God might pose a roadblock for us. We most certainly find him to be a roadblock when our pursuits, our treasures, our desires don't match up with his. But in God's kindness and grace, he knows exactly how to meet us. He knows our pursuits. He knows our treasures. He knows our desires better than we know them ourselves. And he knows all the ways that we can be enticed. And he knows all the ways we distort good things into bad. And he knows where we really have not yet understood how good he is, how much more he loves us than the world ever could. When God wrestles with us, it's because there is something in our lives that doesn't match up with him. And we engage in a back and forth argument. And it's all grace. If you've been wrestling with God on something, be encouraged. It's an indication that he is drawing you closer to him. And he knows how difficult the wrestle can be. The Apostle Paul knew how difficult the wrestle could be all too well. When we turn to 2 Corinthians 12, Verses 7 through 10, Paul basically says he wrestled with God three times. God gave him a thorn in the flesh in order for him not to be conceited. That was a potential issue for Paul. And Paul pleaded three times for him to remove it. But in verse 9, what do we read? God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul reflects, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, 
and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. God knows that we are a work in progress. And if he thinks we need a thorn in our flesh, he'll keep it there because he knows it'll bring us closer to him. And so the third angle we want to view this wrestling from is what does this wrestling match produce? Number one, it produces a changed heart. After this, not only do we find Jacob experiencing miraculous reconciliation with his brother Esau in chapter 33, but we find Jacob aligning himself intentionally with God's purposes in chapter 34. We find him angry at his son's actions at a time where it may have endangered the welfare of God's people. In chapter 35, we find him faithful with the discarding of idols. In chapter 37, we find him heartbroken over the loss of his son Joseph, the son that God uses mightily in Egypt. Chapter 46, Jacob obtains God's permission to bring his family to Egypt. Chapter 49, Jacob blesses his 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob requests that his body be buried in the cave of Machpelah, further signifying that Jacob viewed his life as a way that it aligned with the promise that God had given to Jacob. He viewed himself faithful by God's grace. Aligning himself with his grandfather, excuse me, his grandfather Abraham, rather. Through the earth, through the seed of Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. All these things that Jacob did, would they have occurred if God hadn't wrestled with him previously? No. Whereas Jacob was only determined to get what he wanted through worldly means and deceptions and all the various tactics that he had learned and found success in, Jacob would not have been a part of God's blessing unless God wrestled him first. And God knew exactly how that wrestling match had to end. Jacob had to come out of it with a limp. It produces, second thing, a limp for Jacob. If you want to know who around us is close to God, it's those of us that are walking around with a limp. Turn to Facebook, turn to Instagram, see a lot of vacations, see a lot of happy faces, right? I don't see any limping on there. It's those other places where we really see God working through people, isn't it? Not that God doesn't give us good things, of course. From a worldly perspective, we look at someone without the limp, we think those are the ones that are blessed. Sometimes it's in your battle with faithfulness. God will keep wrestling with you until he's given you a limp. But if that limp comes, just know that each day you wake, each day you feel that limp, those will be the days that you feel God's care and affection most tightly. Those, you'll, you'll find yourself grateful for the limp, as hard as that can be, and you'll be reminded how much better it is to hold on to God tightly for his support than to not hold on to him at all. And really, it's a much better life. That's an understatement. What else does God, does this wrestling match produce? It produces a new name. We don't see Jacob saying his name outright. He could have, the story could have played out differently. He could have said his name right at the back. Hey, hey, I'm Jacob, and I think I know who you are. No, it plays out differently. There's a process to this. Jacob's new path, though, no longer on the run, needs to start with an honest start, and God says, say your name. 
We can deceive others, but we cannot deceive God. And God says, say your name. The old name, Jacob, deceiver, represents his old ways and his underhanded dealings. Doesn't mean some of that still isn't present later because all of us are still a work in progress. But God gave him a new name, Israel, one who wrestles with God. And someone that wrestles with God is someone that God is shaping and using for his purposes. I want to ask you some important questions, but before I do that, we're going to close some of the gap on J.P. Morgan's story. Again, he was a variation of Jacob. J.P. Morgan found out, well, there's certainly good things that come out of hard work and building industries. Undoubtedly true. God uses work for his glory. But for the longest time, he viewed good things as simply acquiring monetary wealth and fancy items and having a ton of people at his disposal. He found value in that for a long time. All the while, he was learning a little bit about God, thought God was good, but only kept him at arm's length. In God's kindness and grace, in God's wrestling with Morgan, with the affliction, with the limp he had, Morgan found out that the greater value in life can even be found in losing it all. You see, at the end of his life, he wrote these words in his will. This is one of the richest men in American history. I commit my soul into the hands of my Savior in full confidence that having received it and washed it in his most precious blood, he will present it faultless before the throne of my heavenly Father and entreat my children to maintain and defend at all hazard. Here's the key line that struck me, and at any cost of personal sacrifice. The blessed doctrine of the complete atonement for sin through the blood of Jesus Christ once offered and through that alone. More so than any lesson he wanted to pass on to his children, more so than learning how to increase personal acquisition, the greater lesson he wanted to pass off was that nothing surpasses the value of Jesus, even if it means suffering complete material loss and the things that we like the most. And J.P. Morgan wished he'd known that earlier. It would have saved him at least, at the very least, a lot of grief. One's appearance, one's health, pales in comparison to a life purchased by Christ. Let me ask you, have you wrestled with God? Is there some place in your life, some way you go about things to get the things you want, achieve your desires, particularly when they aren't the desires of God? Is there some area in your life you feel God might want to change in you so that you would have greater intimacy with him? Have you told God your name? Maybe our name is deceiver, like Jacob. Maybe it's stealer. Maybe it's luster. Maybe it's Bethany, Blake, or Brian, and we know all the various components found within that name, and no one else knows. We know all the pain, all the hurt, all the suffering, all the misdeeds, the missteps, the blemishes. We know the shame we carry. Maybe it's now time to tell God our name. If God made clear to you that you were supposed to change in some area of your life or your character, would you be willing to surrender that to God? Yes, God, this is my name. Are you hesitant to tell God your name?
Only after God's purposes are achieved in us will he give us our blessing. Jacob's rebellion against God was deception. Maybe that's you, maybe that's not you. Maybe there's something you are wrestling with God this season, something else you need to name, a habit, an unhealthy relationship, something you carry that you refuse to let God take care of. And there's some kind of tug on your soul telling you this still needs to be reconciled. Think of Jacob. As soon as he realized he was wrestling with God who actually wanted to help Jacob, Jacob immediately asked God, please tell me your name. Because at that moment when we surrender our name, all of a sudden, just like Jacob, we want to know more about God because he's that wonderful. He's that forgiving. Please tell me your name, asks Jacob. It's only the beginning. If there's something in your life that's serving as a barrier between you and God, it's preventing a, and it is preventing a real relationship with him. Just know this, God made a way for you to experience life with him that surpasses all other lives that this world can possibly offer. And the path to that life surpasses worldly strategies and logic because the way that God made for you is not of this world. It is otherworldly. And your life has been bought for a price. And God paid that price. God sent his son Jesus into the world and died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, compelling us to confess them, and God knew exactly how to meet us. And for those of us that have found our righteousness in Jesus, we have hearts that aren't as hard anymore. They are softer because of his sweet and generous sacrifice to us. And maybe you have a pretty good idea of the kind of person that you are that I am, you th- but you think God has not created a way for your redemption, just know this, no one is beyond the grasp of the gospel. God has created a way for shame to no longer exist in your life. Wrestling with God is not just for a lesson, it's not just a lesson for people that may not know Christ yet, it's also for those of us that have been following Christ for many years, Every single one of us is missing the mark somewhere. No one's getting out of this discussion unscathed. The Christian life includes a series of wrestlings with God, and when God wants to wrestle with us again, it's a different kind of wrestle. It's it's one that reminds us of the beauty of surrender and the comfort and security we have with Jesus as our Lord and King. And let us be a people that want others to know Jesus as Lord and King. Maybe you have a neighbor. Maybe you have a coworker. Maybe you have a friend, a friend, a family member. Maybe there is someone that you see in the news. In this climate, in media, we see this person from this side of the political aisle. We see that person from this side of the political aisle. We see a musician, a, an athlete, an influencer, a criminal, a rapist, a thief. And we say this person is awful. And we, we call that person, him or her, all sorts of names, and we are grateful that we have a God who saves us, but forgetting how holy God is. We forget that it's by grace that we've been saved. We forget that it's God that initiates the wrestle. We forget that in God's presence, we are more safe and secure than any place we've carved out for ourselves. The gospel is not for the pretty people. It's for the broken people. 
It's for the people that are willing to carry a limp. When God wrestles with us, he's telling us, I already know what you are. I know your entire record better than you know it, and yet I still love you. And I love you so much that I will put you through this wrestling match until you see that I'm the one who makes things right. I offer something better than the world I've carved out for you. Carved out for you. I offer you a world that includes Jesus. God offers us Jesus. He is the real hero of our stories. Let us be a people that say, God, I want more of Jesus. God, I want less of me. God, I want the world to desire you. God, I want my life to reflect who you are in my life. God, would you wrestle with me and change my heart? Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you so much, Father, that you are indeed a good God who comes to us first. You are the one who seeks us out. We are your beloved creation, created in your image. And you know, Father, where it is that we have gone astray, where it is that we have pursued things that aren't of you, where it is, Father, that you have sent us for a purpose. And Father, we come to you completely relying on you doing the good work. Father, we come to you right now, submitting our name, knowing a lot of what's entailed in that, knowing that you know more about that name than we do. Father, we ask for your kindness and grace. We are grateful, Father, that you are that God who loves us more than we can possibly imagine. We give you all the glory and praise today. In Christ's name, amen.